And we're back. Next up, we'll be speaking with David K. Johnson, an investigative journalist who we spoke to back in 2008. In 1995, our guest today took a job at the New York Times. His beat was taxes. He did not, however, plan to cover the topic with the usual tips for tax savings and reworked political pronouncements. Instead, David K. Johnston set out to see how taxes get paid in America, noting that taxation is at the core of our democracy. His disturbing yet fascinating report became a bestseller. Perfectly legal, the covert campaign to rig our tax system and benefit the super-rich and cheat everyone else. Yours truly had not read that work and only became aware of Mr. Johnston when he heard him talking to Terry Gross about his current book, Free Lunch, How the Wealthiest Americans Enrich Themselves at Government Expense and Stick You with the Bill. David K. Johnston outlined on Fresh Air how people get rich by having you and I subsidize their businesses and pay large chunks of their taxes. It made for riveting radio and we knew that we wanted him for our program and brought the book promptly. It was then our good fortune that Newman Communications, which has given us so many fine guests, had Mr. Johnson as a client and offered the possibility of an interview. Now, you may have read Kel Munger's excellent review of the book in last week's Sacramento News and Review, or the write-up in The Week magazine, which named him Author of the Week last week. We're delighted to have this Pulitzer Prize winner join us to share some of what can be found in the pages of Free Lunch. He joins us now from Rochester, New York, David K. Johnston. Welcome to Radio Parallax. Well, thank you for having me on, Doug. Well, now, your title comes from the saying popular among those who favor market solutions in economics. There's no such thing as a free lunch, i.e., somebody has to pay for a seeming giveaway. Now, in recent years, it seems clear that that someone has more than ever been us, the taxpayer. Uh, indeed. Uh, we now have a system that's been developed largely since 1980 in which you and I pay taxes to subsidize the richest family in America, the Walton family, who control uh, Walmart, uh, to subsidize George Steinbrenner, the billionaire owner of the New York Yankees, uh, Donald Trump, the uh, presumed billionaire uh, casino owner and uh, TV showman, and a whole lot of other people I name in the book. And we provide things like half billion dollars a year of free labor to Tyco, a company you may recall was at the center of the Wall Street scandals a few years ago. Yeah, I want to, I want to talk about that, that, uh, that, 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 that Tyco uh, example. You talked on Fresh Air about this rather startling example of a whole industry getting a subsidy. That would be the burglar alarm industry. Can you, t can you tell us about how that works? Sure. Um, the burglar alarm industry is phenomenally profitable. According to its own publications, 77 cents out of every dollar paid is counted as operating profit. That's just off the chart. Um, and the reason for this is that the real costs are paid for by the taxpayers. You install a burglar alarm in your home, it goes off, and 99% of burglar alarms are false, by the way. And all the burglar alarm company does is call the police and say, go check out that burglar alarm. Well, that's the subsidy. And that cost is $2 billion a year. Now, you might think, well, wait a minute, the police should respond to burglar alarms. Well, let's examine that for a second. First of all, only one house in five has a burglar alarm. So 80% of homeowners are paying for something that only benefits 20% of homeowners. Secondly, it's a complete waste of time. The average police response time to a burglar alarm is a half an hour. The average burglary 
takes five minutes. <laughs> Research by the federal government shows that having a dog, even a golden retriever, which will lick the burglar's hand, <laughs> is just as effective in deterring burglars as having a burglar alarm. And indeed, I raised the question, maybe just putting a sign out saying you have one is just as effective. Even worse, because the time of roughly one out of every eight police officers on patrol in uniform is devoted to checking out false burglar alarms. It means the police are not spending their time on more important work, like arresting people. Uh, people who, cops who work the burglar alarm beat make an arrest about one-tenth as often as cops just on general patrol, which is not a highly productive area for making arrests. If you want to have burglar alarms, have one, but the taxpayer shouldn't be providing these other companies with this subsidy. And by the way, this subsidy, $2 billion a year, is almost exactly equal to the profits of the burglar alarm industry. It's a little bigger than their profits. So all of the profits of the burglar alarm industry come from this hidden subsidy. Well, I really like the term that you use to illustrate such examples of upside-down economics. You call it uh, economic pollution, which I think is a term that probably should enter the national language. I hope so. I mean, in the same way that, you know, a company um, spews stuff out its smokestack or dumps toxics into the river and therefore uh, makes the rest of us pay the costs of its operations instead of meeting them internally, we have all sorts of companies and industries now that externalize their costs and they shove them onto the taxpayers. Well, it makes those companies quite profitable and it explains why Americans feel so heavily taxed uh, because of those burdens. Well, it appears from reading reading your book that you, you have a great respect for market forces, uh, perhaps unlike some writers from, from the left, but uh, you explain that many of those who pay lip service to the market in reality get rich via government favors, George W. Bush being a classical example, money earned via an eminent domain land seizure. Well, first thing, Doug, I'm not from the left. I don't know why people think that. No, I'm, um, I, I know that. <laughs> okay. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm an investigative reporter. I've been doing this for 40 years. But I, my area of study has been economics and regulation, and that's what I've largely worked on in my career. Uh, Mr. Bush is a really good example of what's happened to our economy. Uh, George Bush owes almost his entire fortune to a tax increase that was funneled into his pocket. And as part of that, the use of eminent domain so that he could get government to seize land he coveted at a discounted price for he and his partners. What Mr. Bush did was, in 1989, there was an oil man named Eddie Chiles who was 89 years old. He wanted to sell his money-losing baseball team before his time ran out. And Bush got on the phone, called a bunch of very, very wealthy men he knew, billionaires, uh, including uh, two guys who, with whom he had invested in one of the most vicious slasher films ever made in Hollywood, <laughs> and said, if we buy this team, it's a really sweet deal because we'll get the taxpayers to build us a stadium and then we can sell a team at a big profit. They held an election in this town in Texas on an odd date. Very few people showed up to vote. They raised the sales tax by a half a cent. The total subsidy, according to uh, Ray Hutchison, Ray Hutchison is a friend of George Bush's. He's the husband of U.S. Senator Kay Bailey Hutchison, a Texas Republican, and the leading authority on municipal finance in Texas. Uh, according to him, the subsidy was $202.5 million dollars. When the team was sold, they made a profit of $164 million. What does that mean? It means 100% of the profit reported by Mr. Bush and his partners came from the taxpayers. The market did not produce one penny. In fact, there was a loss here, a deadweight loss, 
of almost $40 million because of the inefficiency of this subsidy. And then when Mr. Bush filed his tax return, he cheated on his taxes and underpaid by about $3.4 million. Nothing happened to him because under our tax system, if the government doesn't challenge your tax return and a certain number of years pass, you're no longer liable for the tax, even if you should have paid more. And he wasn't audited because the year that he would have come up for an audit was the year that the IRS first audited more poor people than rich people. They're more likely to audit poor people than rich people. And his chances of being audited were extremely small. I think he had some friends in high places, too. <laughs> yeah, but that isn't how they pick him. They pick him objectively, um, and he, he ran a very tiny risk of being audited. Well, let, let's return to the, the Waltons, who you mentioned a second ago. Uh, you spent a lot of time in the book outlining how communities in America basically are shaken down by companies like Walmart, which practice what can only be called corporate socialism. They even sometimes arrange to keep the sales taxes they generate, which shocked me to learn. Um, you talk a little about, about Sam Walton getting a free lunch. Well, they keep the sales taxes, and they often, for years, don't have to pay property taxes. Uh, here's what happens. The retailer comes, and it's Walmart, Target, Cabela's, Bass Pro, in some cases, entire shopping centers. And they say to the local city fathers, well, we'll build this development. It'll create all these jobs, but you have to let us keep the sales taxes because that'll pay for building our buildings. And you have to exempt us from the property taxes because otherwise we don't think it's a good investment. Now, that means that, first of all, the schools and the police and the fire department and the libraries and the parks are not getting the money they need. And you'll notice all the strain that municipal government is under to pay its bills in this country. Secondly, their argument is, well, we're going to increase the sales. So you're really not losing anything. This is an incremental financing. That's what they call tax increment financing. What they really mean is we get to keep the taxes. Well, do you go out and buy more diapers or light bulbs or cans of soup because a new store opens? Of course not. All the subsidy does is concentrate the business in the location of this business. If you own Doug's department store across the street, you're paying full taxes, you're paying property taxes, and you now have to compete against these other guys. And all across America, small merchants are being destroyed and being replaced by national merchants, not because they're more efficient. In many cases, they're not. Not because of the market, but because government is interfering in the market and doing favors for these folks. Well, let's talk about an example that comes right out of your book. I had never heard of the, uh, the chain known as Cabela's, but you noticed in the book that uh, you talk about how they were being offered a handsome subsidy by Reno. And two weeks ago in the Sacramento Bee, they had an insert announcing the grand opening of Cabela's in, in Reno. And I'm sure our listeners will be rather surprised to learn that this chain averages something like $25 million dollars in gifts from city fathers, and Reno apparently offered something like double that. Well, I don't know what the deal was at the end. At one point in Reno, they were talking about $150 million, and uh, one of Cabela's competitors, uh, Bass Pro, is negotiating a deal that's worth somewhere between 30 and $100 million for a 75,000-square-foot store. That's not that big. That's less than two acres. Cabela's, in uh, 2004, 5, and 6, those are the first three years it was a publicly traded company and had to report its profits, reported about $225 million in profits from all its operations, including its re most, most of it came from its catalog, not its retail stores, but they made deals to collect almost $300 million of subsidies. So I argue that Cabela's really isn't in the business of selling hunting rifles and 
a fishing tackle, they're really in the business of reeling in subsidies from taxpayers. There's a little town I write about in the Poconos, 4,000 people that agreed to give Cabela's $32 million. That's $8,000 for every man, woman, and child in town. It is more than the entire budget of Hamburg, Pennsylvania, the entire city budget for everything the city does for 10 years. And in the process, they ran out of business. A local merchant named Jim Weeknecht, who charged lower prices. It's unbelievable. We're speaking with David K. Johnston about his new book, Free Lunch, How the Wealthiest Americans Enrich Themselves at Government Expense and Stick You with the Bill. I would like to note just a, 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 a happy note here that the well-financed effort to get taxpayers to build a new arena for the benefit of the billionaire Las Vegas casino owners, the Sacramento Kings, did fail miserably last year after people pointed out there was some pretty dubious economics and how that deal was going to help local businesses. Well, these deals are going on, though, all over the country. The big four commercial sports, Doug, uh, baseball, basketball, uh, football, and hockey, made operating profits, not net profits, but operating profits, of about $1.7 billion in 2006. But they got subsidies of $2 billion. So if it weren't for subsidies, the big commercial sports leagues would all be losing money overall. In addition, when these subsidies are handed out, the teams typically raise prices. The average price increase in baseball is 41%. And here's how huge those subsidies are. George Steinbrenner's getting $600 million for the new Yankee Stadium that we know of so far. Every time there's a further study, the subsidy gets bigger and bigger. The new Washington Nationals baseball team, they're getting a subsidy of over $600 million. They only paid $450 million for the team. That means you and I as taxpayers bought the team for them and gave them $150 million as a present for taking the team over, and the taxpayers gave to the owners the right to sell naming rights at the stadium, which is worth another $400 million over the next 20 years, minimum $400 million. So they didn't pay anything to buy the team. They were paid to buy the team, and the very first thing they did was raise ticket prices, and for the seats that are most in line with the television cameras, remember this is Washington where there's a lot of politicians like Sacramento, (laughs) they tripled prices. It, it, unbelievable. Well, let's talk about some, some Washington politicians. They've been sort of basically encouraging companies to move jobs to China. How does that work? Our government has a set of policies that encourage companies to move as fast as they can their jobs, their intellectual assets, and their other assets offshore. One of the ways we do this is that when uh, Nixon opened up China to American investment, The American oil companies went and met with the Chinese and said, you know, we want you to uh, impose a corporate income tax. Now, to the communists in Beijing, this was a very strange thing to be told. I mean, first of all, whoever asks to be taxed, and these are communists. They believe the state should own the means of production. But then the oil companies explained the reason. The reason is that if they were taxed in China, they could pay less to the United States government. And indeed, overall, because companies are taxed worldwide, Uh, U.S. multinational companies save about $7 billion a year in taxes, according to studies done by Congress. Well, the Chinese military has long been teaching its officer corps that war with the United States is inevitable, and they've been preparing them for this war. So what happened uh, just a few years ago? Uh, The Chinese military, working through a front, arranged to buy an entire American industry to shut that industry down, 
in the United States and remove all of the technology, all of the knowledge to China. It is the making of super powerful lightweight magnets, including no doubt ones used in the microphones that we're speaking over. Those are the same magnets that are used in smart bombs and laser-guided missiles. We cannot conduct a sustained war without this technology. Now, President Clinton allowed the Chinese, through their military fronts, and, and these were very high-level fronts, the two daughters of Deng Xiaoping, the paramount leader of China at the time, were involved in these deals. Uh, he allowed them to buy the technology, but not to remove it from the U.S. President Bush allowed the Chinese to shut this down and remove it from the U.S., and when Senator Evan Bayh of Indiana said, what is going on here? How can this possibly be good for United States security? The White House would not respond. They wouldn't respond to my questions. The only thing they have ever said is, we know what we're doing. We trust us. All is well. Well, it's, it's, uh, it isn't just China. You, you document in the book that, uh, that places like the Cayman Islands and Bermuda have become uh, tax havens where companies pretend they're operating in these locations and then just basically ship the mail back home. That's right. Um, in fact, uh, back in 1990, about 1% of American corporate profits were taken in tax havens like the Cayman Islands. It's now more than 20%. And what a company does is it manufactures something in uh, Vietnam or some other place where they get incredibly cheap labor. And on paper, on paper, they sell it to an entity in the Cayman Islands, which consists of nothing more than a mailbox. They jack up the price, and then they resell it in the U.S., where they show very, very little profit. And we allow this all the time. Um, it is subject to all sorts of abuse, and it's all done in secret. All of this is done in secret. The, the IRS knows what's going on, or at least they, have, they think they know what's going on. But you and I are completely left out in the dark because we have to respect the confidentiality of these internal business decisions of these companies. Well, uh, in California, we're still smarting over our energy crisis a few years back. You explain in Free Lunch how Kenny Boylet of Enron and, and others gamed the energy market to loot customers. Can you outline how, quote, deregulating, unquote, the energy market got a lot of people rich by screwing the customer? Well, you know, deregulation has been a big mantra since 1980. There is no such thing as deregulation. There's only new regulation. Everything has rules. Your employer at the radio station has rules. Baseball has rules on how many stitches there are on the baseball. And what we got were new rules on electricity markets. We created electricity markets designed by Enron. Half the states bought into this. Well, there have been a number of studies showing that these markets drive up prices. And the most interesting one, I think, was one done by a professor, Siraj Talakdar, created an ideal market of electricity buyers and electricity sellers and had them begin bidding. And within 24 rounds of bidding, prices were at the same prices a monopoly could charge. So he readjusted his study. Same thing happened. He readjusted again. Same thing happened. He did it one more time. Same thing happened. Why? Well, because the design of these markets, as set up by Enron, does that. It doesn't produce the lowest possible price, the kind of market Adam Smith wrote about in The Wealth of Nations. Instead, by its design, it forces prices up because one side, the generators of electricity, are not required by law to sell power, and the other side, the distributors who run the wire into your house, the utility companies, are required to buy power and supply whatever amount people want. So there are occasions I document in the book where power that companies were willing to give away or sell for $1 was sold for as much as $990. 
and there's a little story I tell about during the California energy crisis that the Northwest delegation, Oregon and Washington, wanted to meet with Vice President Cheney. and He said he would come only in the condition that no one from California would be allowed in the room. Well, the last guy to get in the room was a former prosecutor and a congressman named Jay Inslee from uh, Washington State, and he ended up just sitting right across from the vice president, whom he'd never met before in this windowless basement room. And all these congressmen said, look, little businesses are being put out of business. we got grocery stores and, and all sorts of other places that are having to lay people off and go out because of these electricity prices, and, and Cheney would hear none of it. He didn't care. When it finally got to the congressman, Inslee uh, offered the, to show a fax to Vice President Cheney, which showed that on the, that, the day before, one-third of generating capacity in California was shut down, even though record prices were available in the market. I mean, you would think that, my goodness, this is winter, we're getting higher prices than we get in the summer, you'd want to crank up every machine you can. Vice President Cheney wouldn't even look at the document. He shoved it with his hand back to the congressman and said, Congressman, your problem is you don't know anything about economics. Congressman Inslee has a degree in economics. We subsequently learned that, in fact, Enron traders, you know, were bragging about how they were ripping faces off grandmothers and cheating people and how they were selling electricity out of the state of California to escape price caps and then putting it back in. In those states that went for the Enron rules, electricity prices have been rising faster and higher than in those states that stayed with traditional regulation, which has lots of its own problems. And I show how this happened, the role of Enron. It's in, in one chapter, I retell it as a modern version of the Siege of Troy. And there's a Cassandra and Lacoon and Odysseus and all the other characters all there playing out this tragedy. I know we're up against it on time, and I, I just have one final thing I want to ask you about, because I've seen this with my own eyes. My um, good friend of mine used to fly a corporate jet, used to fly these Sacramento Kings around. We were up in Truckee a couple years back and noticed these corporate jets out on the runway and walked over and got a rather, uh, a rather extensive tour of, of what these things are all about. And uh, I asked uh, my friend later, what this cost, probably this guy, to fly out for a golf game from Ohio? And he said, well, at least $20,000. And you talk about this subsidy to corporate jets uh, in, in the book quite a bit. It's really maybe not the biggest thing in the world, but it is such an outrageous tax ripoff. If the executive owns his own jet, if you own your own jet, it costs $20,000. But if you're the executive of a publicly traded company and you're using the company's jet, the cost to you of that trip was about $500 under rules set by Congress, rules that were passed in the name of relief to middle-class taxpayers in 1985. And uh, you as a taxpayer pick up about $7,000, that $20,000 cost, and you as an investor who's got your retirement savings in the stock of that and other companies, you're picking up the other $13,000 real cost. And this is just one example of how we have all these rules that take from the many to give to the rich. And all the way through the book, I cite Adam Smith, the father of modern economics and market capitalism, and the Bible as sources on this. And throughout the Bible, the practice of taking from those with less to give to the rich is condemned. Uh, the Bible says that uh, if you give to the rich, your society will come to ruin. Well, your, your last chapter in the book is what to do. That is the question of the day. Uh, how do we start, for example, with shareholders of companies fighting back against these, these boards, which are handpicked by the CEOs to rubber stamp their unbelievable compensation packages? Well, everything is set by rules, and we have allowed a set of rules that are allowing those people who want to milk the government 
to run free and have created for them a, an absolute paradise. And there is a solution to this. The mo only un-American thing I think you can really say is we can't solve a problem. The whole premise of our country is that we will govern ourselves, we will work out solutions to our problems, and for all of our imperfections, we have made enormous progress in this country over the last 200-plus years. And what I do at the end is show how, based right on the Constitution, there is a solution to this problem. It may not be the best solution, and readers may not agree with it, but it should get us talking about the fact that we can solve these problems. We can have a government that is responsive to the people, not the moneyed people. But first, you have to understand what's been done. And the news media, in which I work, has done a lousy job of explaining what's going on here. Secondly, once you know what's happened, you will discover, reading the news, listening to the radio, watching the TV, things that just went by as inconsequential will come into crystal clear focus about the economy. And then people can begin questioning their legislators and their candidates for office about why they're engaging in promoting policies that, to cite Adam Smith, are contrary to the interests of the whole of the people and instead act, as Smith complained constantly, uh, we need to be careful of to handcuff the invisible hand of the market and to put a thumb on the scale on behalf of business against its customers. David K. Johnston, I hope you can return to speak with us again after we finish Perfectly Legal. There's a lot more to talk about. Be delighted to. Thank you, Doug. All righty. We have to take a quick break, but we'll be right back after these messages. Get back. 